Let me invite you now to open your Bibles to the 21st chapter of the book of Acts. Today we will be looking at chapter 21, verse 27 through chapter 22 and verse 22. And I am reminded again of the words of Martin Luther regarding the Bible. He said this, he said, The Bible is alive, it speaks to me. The Bible has feet, it runs after me. The Bible has hands, it lays hold of me. Would to God that his word would do that for us today. Please give attention now to the reading of God's word as we begin in chapter 21 and verse 17. When we had come to Jerusalem, the br uh, excuse me, I'm in the wrong place. Verse 27, pardon me. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place, that is the temple. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another, and as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, Away with him! And Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? And not the Egyptian then, who recently stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men into, of the assassins out into the wilderness. Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, actually Aramaic, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet, and he said... I am a Jew born in Tarsus, in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, 
according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I'm persecuted this way to, uh, to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Well, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the, uh, by the hand by those who were with me, and came to Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. At that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear the, a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise, be baptized, and wash away your sins calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing there, uh, standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word they listened to him. Then they raised their voices, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. This is God's word. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, as we look today at this text in the book of Acts, we are grateful that we have been given uh, your word, which you have exalted above your name. Your word that is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, which is able to pierce asunder between the joints and marrow and the soul and the spirit, and is a critic of the thoughts and motives of our heart. We do pray today that your word would find its target in our heart, that your spirit would take the word and work in us that which is well-pleasing in your sight. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, today is Palm Sunday, and maybe you're wondering why I'm not preaching a sermon on Palm Sunday. I have been preaching for 40 years. I started when I was seven. And so 
I have preached a lot of Palm Sunday sermons, but you're going to see some resonance with Paul, Palm Sunday in the treatment of Paul here. I think Luke deliberately uh, compares uh, Paul and the Lord Jesus Christ. There are a number of ways in which the treatment given to Paul in this text and given to Jesus Christ were similar. First, we see that Paul came to Jerusalem, though he knew he would suffer there. In the same way, Jesus came to Jerusalem knowing he would be crucified there. Second, Paul at the temple is accused of teaching against our law and this place. In the same way, Jesus was accused of speaking against the temple, saying that he would make it obsolete. Third, Paul was beaten to within an inch of his life by those who accosted him. Jesus, of course, also we know was beaten. Fourth, though the Jews apprehended Paul, he was dealt with by Roman law, Roman jurisprudence. As we will see, Paul, like Christ, has both a trial before the Sanhedrin and a trial before the Roman judges. Fourth, even the crowd's cries are the same with both Paul and Christ away with him. Fifth, Paul was accused of bringing Gentiles into the temple area. Of course, that was illegal. And the Romans gave the Jews the power to kill any Gentile that came into the temple, even if that person was a Roman citizen. In the same way, Jesus was attacked for eating with and receiving sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors, all Gentiles. It has often been pointed out that Luke wants to draw out these similarities between Paul's sufferings in Jerusalem and Christ's sufferings. But why? Why does, why does Luke do that? Is Luke simply trying to pump up and glorify Paul, making him some sort of divine figure, get us to give him some sort of super veneration? Let's give Luke more credit than that. He is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. There is no indication that Luke thinks Paul's sufferings redeem us in any way. Rather, Luke may be trying to remind us that all Christians have to expect the same sort of uh, overflowing of the pattern of Christ's life into our own. Let me talk about that a little more. Every Christian is called to take up the cross and follow Christ. But what does that mean? It means that if we simply obey Christ, at various, various points we will suffer because we are obeying. Paul says the sufferings of Christ overflow into our lives. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 5. How? Sometimes telling the truth or giving love to someone will result in loss. Sometimes we become vulnerable because we're obeying Christ instead of looking out for our own self-interest. At other times, we will suffer persecution by others for our Christian profession. Paul makes a remarkable categorical statement in 2 Timothy 3.12 that all who live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. What about you? And what about me? It means that even in a society that allows religious freedom, however defined, if we are not cowards about admitting our faith, we will at some point become the victim of bias or prejudice or at least, if not outright attack, and assault. 
So the end of the parallels of Paul with Christ is not to show us how to be exceptional like Paul is as a Christian, but how unexceptional Paul is. Jesus said, all men will hate you because of me. A student is not above his master. Those of us who keep up with the current trends and times are seeing the circle drawn tighter day by day, and it can happen so fast. And I'm not a prophet or a son of a prophet, but persecution's coming. And it's going to winnow the wheat from the tares and the chaff. And it will happen, maybe in my lifetime, but certainly in my grandchildren's lifetime. Uh, maybe even before that. What does it tell us about Paul when he turned to speak to this mob? Well, before we get ahead of ourselves, I want to explain this mob action against Paul because it is rather interesting. James had a plan to pacify Jewish sensibilities and to refute Jewish slanders against Paul, but that plan seemed to totally backfire. In the temple, Asian Jews recognized Paul from his effective ministry in Ephesus, and they reacted immediately and violently. They seized Paul and shouted wild accusations. If you read the text, it's like they're all over the place, screaming all kinds of things. Truly a mob. And so they gathered the mob together to join in their attack on this man who they considered highly dangerous to their Jewish way of life. Inadvertently echoing Stephen's accusers, they charged that Paul taught against the Jewish people the law and this place that is the temple. Specifically, they jumped to the conclusion that Paul had defiled the temple by bringing an uncircumcised Gentile, Trophimus, of Ephesus, whom they had seen with Paul elsewhere, past the wall that separated the court of the Gentiles from the temple precincts proper. And so they assumed, they supposed, because they saw him out in public together, that Paul had taken, nobody saw it, nobody witnessed it, nobody was there when it happened, but they supposed. Let me tell you something about false accusations and being misrepresented. Sometimes you need to get over it and shut your mouth. You really do. About commenting on everything that happens. You don't know the whole story. One of the difficulties about being an elder in a church and a teaching elder in particular is we know things you don't know. We know information you don't know. It's confidential. We don't pass it around. We don't talk about it. But sometimes we'll make a decision and you'll look at us and you'll go, well, that doesn't seem very spiritual, or that doesn't seem very godly, or that doesn't seem right. Well, just remember, you don't know everything. We don't know everything, but you know less than we do, maybe, about the situation. So that calls you at times to have to trust your elders in their decision-making. And there are reasons. We're Presbyterians, for heaven's sakes. There's a reason why we do everything, and a reason why we don't. But sometimes that needs to be said. So these were, you know, like scurrilous rumors uh, flying at the Apostle Paul, and the accusations were there. And if you've ever been the victim of false accusations, you've ever been the victim of hearsay, uh, it is, nothing makes you feel more vul vulnerable and powerless 
than people repeating gossip and doing those things. It can destroy a church. It can create a firestorm in 24 hours. And so gossip is not a spiritual gift. <laughs> it's a sin. Now, I don't know why I said that. Maybe somebody needed to hear it. It's not in my notes. So uh, hopefully the Holy Spirit is speaking today. So they jumped to the conclusion that Paul had defiled the whole temple. And uh, remember the wall I mentioned. There was a wall mentioned by ancient writers and recovered by modern archaeologists warning Gentiles that they would face immediate violent death for trespassing that boundary. We who know Paul's true motive for being in the temple find their accusation ludicrous. But their perception of Paul as an apostate from Judaism and their zeal for the temple, Torah, and tradition made the accusation plausible to the crowds milling in the temple courts. And so the mob got out of control and they dragged Paul out of the court of the Gentiles and closed the gates to protect the inner courts from the defilement from his blood as they began to beat him to death for his blasphemy. These people were quite serious about their identity residing in their traditions, their law, and their temple. And so as a result of that, not having an identity in Jesus Christ, they had to fight for an identity of their own. So a Roman cohort, that is 1,000 soldiers, uh, was garrisoned at the fortress Antonia, named after Mark Antony, which overshadowed the temple and provided quick asset, uh, access to its precincts when troops were needed to quell civil disturbances among the rest of Jewish worshipers. News of the riot had arrived upstairs to one Claudius Lysias, who immediately raced downstairs with centurions and soldiers under their command. Since each centurion commanded 100 troops, at least two and maybe more, two or three hundred Roman infantrymen emerged from the fortress stairway. Now what drove them to do this? They were responsible for keeping the peace in Jerusalem and quelling all outbreaks of violence and mobs. And so since each centurion had troops, they emerged from the stairway, not surprisingly at their appearance, Paul's attackers withdrew. Since Paul was obviously uh, the occasion of the turmoil, Claudius Lysias had him arrested and chained by both hands, thus, in a surprising way, fulfilling Agabus's prediction uh, that Paul would be bound and carried. Jewish hostility placed Paul bound into Roman custody, unable to discern Paul's crime because of the conflicting shouts of the mob, the tribune commanded that Paul be brought up to his headquarters in the fortress. The zealous mob emerged from this momentary paralysis of intimidation, rushing the soldiers and their captive, Paul, who had to be carried to safety on the stairways leading up to the barracks. The mob continued to chant, away with him. Just as an earlier crowd had demanded of the procurator, Pontius Pilate, away with this man, crucify him. Now, did James's plan totally backfire? 
Paul was in the temple to show his loyalty to the faith of Israel, and that worthy motive led to his being beaten as an apostate and a defiler of the temple. No good deed goes unpunished, huh? Nor was this the first time that he had felt the pain of having his best intentions misconstrued in the worst light. Did Paul err in following James' advice? We might think so if we only look at a short-term outcome. Careful reflection, however, leads to a different conclusion. Paul's motive, after all, was not to avoid mistreatment at the hands of unbelievers, but rather to reassure Jewish Christians that he supported their continued adherence to the customs commanded by Moses. In the week before Paul's arrest, his participation with the four brothers who were completing their vows would have become known throughout the Jerusalem church, setting many believers' suspicions to rest. More importantly, as Paul had traveled to Jerusalem, the Holy Spirit repeatedly announced that sufferings and imprisonment were awaiting him there, most graphically only days before in the action prophecy of Agabus. Paul did not expect to evade the suffering that God's purpose had in store for him, nor did he even wish to do so. For the sake of Christ's cause, and the church, Paul was willing to endure not only inconvenience, but also hardship and even death. The riot at the temple would prove to be one of the series of interlocking events in God's plan to ultimately bring Paul to Rome, the capital of the empire. Often we, listen carefully, gauge whether a decision has been right or wrong by the results that we see in the short run. Many of the factors that produce those results, however, lie beyond our control. God does not expect us to foresee the future, so he weighs our decisions according to the standards of his word and the motives of our heart. Choices made for the right reasons and the right motives please our Father, whatever the immediate outcome may be. I remember when I was a young Christian, Everybody was obsessed and talking about finding the will of God for your life, finding that one perfect person to marry, finding that one perfect school to go to, finding that one <laughs> uh, place to live and rear your family. And so it was called the dot theory of God's will. You had to hit the dot. And if you missed the dot, then you were charged with having to live with God's second best. Any of you ever heard that? Or am I just making it? That was thriving when I was a new Christian. I mean, it was just like everybody was walking around seeking God's will. Weren't seeking God, just pretty much seeking His will to know what I'm supposed to do. But the difficulty with that is God's will always doesn't lead us to Disneyland. Or the world. I mean, it doesn't lead us to great outward blessing. Sometimes God has willed for us difficulty uh, to, to uh, shake us up uh, like he did Peter uh, to strengthen his faith. Now, I want us to look at a, uh, the latter part. We've seen that Paul was assaulted by the Jews, arrested by the Romans. But I wanted to take a little closer look, as we have time, 
At Paul's defense in the presence of the crowd that had rioted against him, because it's one of the, it's, it's an amazing strategy that he uses here, which is quite helpful. Paul not only preached the gospel, but Paul looked carefully at the audience who was listening to him. He not only exegeted the scriptures, so to speak, but he exegeted his audience. He read them. He knew where they were coming from. And so in this message he gives, you'll gradually see him escalate till eventually he gets to the point where they're ready to kill him. But up to that point, he provides every courtesy and polite way of, of sharing what he shares here. So let's jump right into it. Despite the beating from which he had just been rescued, Paul was unwilling to give up his attempt to vindicate the gospel in the eyes of his Jewish kinsmen. And he and the soldiers reached the top of the stairway and were about to enter the fortress. He respectfully requested permission to address the tribune who expressed surprise at Paul's polished Greek. Claudius Lysias had assumed that Paul might be the Egyptian prophetic pretender whose revolutionary movement had recently put down, been put down by the Roman procurator Felix. The Egyptian presented himself as a new Moses and Joshua. He gathered to himself 4,000 assassins, literally dagger men, and they had lived in the desert uh, like Israel in Moses' day. According to Jewish historian Josephus, who sometimes exaggerates wildly, um, the Egyptian predicted that Jerusalem's walls would fall like Jericho's when surrounded by his guerrillas, leaving Rome's occupation forces exposed. Instead, 400 rebels were killed and another 200 captured while their leader escaped. So maybe that's who Claudius thought Paul was. Paul insisted that he was a Jew, not an Egyptian, and that he was a citizen of Tarsus, a highly respected city, and not a terrorist from the wilderness. His command of Greek, his courtesy in addressing the tribune, and his claim to a status worthy of honor combined to persuade the commander to give Paul permission to speak and to address the Jewish crowds milling in the temple precincts below. The apostle to the Gentiles would try again to convince his countrymen that faith in Jesus the Messiah is the fulfillment, not the repudiation of God's covenant with Israel. Now, as someone who reads a lot, I often run into the charge that people like me, who see the church as the fulfillment of Judaism, are engaged in what they call replacement theology. We have replaced the Jews. My argument against that is we aren't replacing anything. We see rather fulfillment, not replacement. They're not the same thing at all. And so as a result of that, Paul's defense here is an autobiographical account of his early training in Judaism and violent opposition to Christianity. What does Paul do when he addresses the mob? He tells them a story. Think about that. He tells them a story, his own story, as it were, in this uh, particular e uh, example. Paul had been in violent opposition to the Christian way of his life-changing meeting 
and risen Lord near Damascus, a subsequent vision granted him in the very temple that he was accused of defiling. I, I somehow have missed that. It's like Isaiah, of course, we know, went to the temple and saw the Lord in Isaiah chapter 6. Paul, uh, obviously, as it were, went to the temple and went into a trance, and there God gave him a vision uh, as well of himself and his call. And so the, the speech at the temple is the second of three narratives of Paul's conversion in the book of Acts. Um, through such repeated narration, as we have seen, Luke emphasizes the event's importance, adding details appropriate to each setting. This first report by Paul himself of how Jesus transformed him is a direct response to the slander that he, Paul, advocated Jewish apostasy from the law of Moses and the temple. And so Paul immediately begins to build bridges by addressing the crowd in Aramaic. The original says Hebrew dialect and could refer to Hebrew, which was still a living spoken language at that time, especially in the context of temple worship. But the expression also included Aramaic, the Semitic language most widely used by Jews in Palestine. Hearing Paul address them in that way in their own language, caused the crowd to be settled into silence, to catch every word. And he shows both respect and Jewish solidarity by addressing them as brothers and fathers, just as Stephen did in Acts chapter 6. Paul's early life showed his affinity for everything that his hearers held dear. He was a Jew. Although born in the dispersion in Tarsus of Cilicia, he had been brought up in Jerusalem from early childhood, and his rabbinical education was at the feet of Gamaliel, um, which was, who was a leader of the respected school of Hillel, whose widest moderation in response to the Christian movement Luke had recorded earlier. Paul had training in their ancestral law, had been thorough, it had been rigorous, a similar word to that rendered strict in the ESV appears in Paul's later description of the Pharisees to whom he belonged as the strictest party of our religion. So Paul's education in the law entailed not only exhaustive detail, but also scrupulous precision in applying the law to himself and to others. His zeal for the Torah and for the tradition was unsurpassed among the ones who were listening to him exhibiting itself especially in the violent persecution of Jesus' followers. Hmm. These claims parallel Paul's retro perspective on his pre-Christian life in his epistles, particularly Galatians 1 and Philippians 3. He had not spared women, but arrested them along with male believers, handing them over to prison, punishment, and even death. In seizing Christians, he was persecuting the way, trying to eradicate what he then considered as a very false and dangerous path. Paul even summoned the high priest and the Sanhedrin's body of elders as witnesses to confirm his former zeal for the defense of Ju Judaism by eradicating the threat posed by faith in Jesus. 
They could testify that his zeal led him to expand his campaign into the dispersion, carrying letters authorizing the extradition of Christian Jews to Jerusalem for trial. It was about noon, Paul says, as they approached Damascus, that a bright light from heaven suddenly surrounded Paul and his companions, and the timing at midday implies that the heavenly light outshone the sun at its strongest position. It also connects Paul's subsequent blindness with the ancient covenant curse that threatened Israel with the consequences of unfaithfulness. You shall grope at noonday as the blind grope in darkness. As we notice, Paul's companions observed the objective reality of the vision, although its specific content was revealed only to Paul. They saw the light, but not the glorious one who appeared to Saul in the light. They heard the sound, but they didn't understand the voice of the divine speaker who addressed. This was not de uh, dehydration nor hallucination. Here Paul's narrative most closely parallels Luke's earlier account of the twofold address. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? And the stunning answer, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. In persecuting Christian believers, Paul had persecuted the way, but in fact his aggression was more personal and more grave. He persecuted the one whose radiant glory was so overpowering that he could only be called Lord. Jesus the Lord so identifies with his people that he counts his sufferings as his own, or our sufferings as his own. Paul never got over. He never got over persecuting the church. When he declared that he was the worst and the first of sinners, he did so by reminding himself that he had persecuted the body of Christ. He had persecuted Christ himself, as it were. Yet through Paul's amazing grace, uh, Paul was not consumed by God's wrath, but rather commissioned to God's work. A task had been assigned him, and instructions awaited him in Damascus. And Paul's account of his meeting with uh, the pious Ananias omits, omits mention of the vision in which Jesus reassured the latter and sent him to pray for the church's former persecutor. Instead, Paul focuses, if you'll look carefully at it, to Ananias' devotion to the law and respected reputation in the whole Jewish community of Damascus. Here, then, is another witness on the behalf of Paul's fidelity to Israel and her traditions. The man who ushered him into the Christian faith was himself well known for carefully keeping the commandments. Through Ananias' word... By the authority of the Lord Jesus, Paul received his physical sight again. More importantly, he received insight into his new mission. Ananias brought a word from the God of our fathers. That last phrase, by the way, comes from the message of impending liberation that God gave Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3. And it stresses that Paul still serves the God who redeemed his ancestors and claimed them by his covenant. God had chosen Paul to see and to hear and to bear witness to what he had seen and heard. In the Greek version of the account of the burning bush, Moses begged God to choose some other more competent person to free Israel. 
But God had made his selection. Likewise, Paul's years as an arrogant persecutor could not reverse the fact that Paul had been set apart from his mother's womb. And the call of sovereign grace was sure to come. When it did, it seized its quarry. If your name's written in the book, it's just a matter of time. He's coming after you. Some of you right now might be running from him, but uh, he'll catch you. If you're his, he will bring you in. You should be encouraged by that. And the faster you run, the more powerful he will be. And so Paul saw, as it were, the righteous one, the obedient servant who was wounded for other sins and so justified many, constituting them right in God's sight. Jesus' identity as the righteous one showed the injustice of Israel's mistreatment of him. But Jesus' righteousness is also the only hope for Israel or for anyone in this room. Once Paul discovered that his pursuit of self-achieved righteousness had made him God's enemy, he gladly confessed his dependence on the righteousness of God, which comes not from law-keeping, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Like the eleven, Paul could boast of the privilege lavished upon him by divine mercy. Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? And so Paul discovered that in his zeal to establish his own righteousness by persecuting the church, he was only entrenched all the more and enthralled by the power of sin. But once he looked outside of himself and saw the righteous one and understood that it wasn't by his reliance upon his self-achieved godliness, but upon looking outside of himself and laying hold of, by faith, the righteous record of Christ. And I want to tell you what that will do for you. It will save you. It will save you from self-righteousness, which I've always said is the halitosis of the soul. Self-righteousness is like bad breath. You don't know you got it, but everybody else does. One of the things I see is uh, about myself, and I'm not speaking of anyone else in the room, though I know it's true. I like to be right. There is something exhilarating about being right. And I just find that in myself uh, something I struggle with quite a bit because I really enjoy being right. It just feels good to be right. But let me tell you something. You will never do business with God until you see how wrong we are about ourselves. And once we despair of our own uh, ability to keep God in debt to us by doing good... That's the best thing that will ever happen to you in your life. You then are at the place where you got nowhere to go but Jesus. And you can Velcro to Christ. I mean, just stick yourself to Him. And then His righteousness becomes your own as much as if you did it yourself. And that's what Luther's discovery was. 
He rediscovered the gospel as he began to see that there was an alien righteousness, not a UFO, but alien in the sense that it was outside of him and his sphere, a righteousness accredited to him that Jesus performed and accompanied as our, the obedient servant of God who obeyed the law on our behalf because we never could. And that's where our rest comes from. That's where the gospel hits at mark. You can come to church all your life and not understand that. You can. I did. I hate to tell you that I preached a good 20 years not truly understanding this. And so as a result of that, I need to wrap this up and I will, but as a result of that, uh, I was always walking around thinking, when is the other shoe going to drop? I know I'm not living up. I know I'm confessing a whole lot of sin here. How can I get the Father to smile at me? How can I get the Father's pleasure and approval upon me? And one day it hit home. You will never get it. Jesus did, but he gives it to you free. And if that ever hits home, and you believe it, from the crown of your head to the soles of your feet, you will be a different person. And your self-righteousness, which Jesus hates, and I have it still, but your self-righteousness will loosen its grip on you. You don't always have to be right. You don't always have to win. You don't always have to express your opinion about every single thing. You can rest. And that's what makes you winsome and attractive as a Christian. Nobody likes to know it all. Been one, I know, because I got told that. <laughs> so Paul discovered justification by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. He heard the words from the mouth of Jesus and was responsible for delivering the message of God's saving purpose to all races and classes of people. He was under compulsion, had no alternative. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. Jesus had called him like the original apostles to his witness, testifying to what he'd seen and heard. So Ananias instructed Paul, he submitted to baptism, he called on the name of the Lord, fulfilling Joel's prophecy. Throughout scripture to call on the name of the Lord is to appeal for his rescue, admitting our helplessness and worshiping him in humble trust. In blind pride, Paul had hunted down those who called on Jesus' name. Now, he's one of them. Paul's defense continued with his description of a vision not previously mentioned in Acts where he received after his return from Damascus to Jerusalem. It occurred while he was praying in the temple and another piece of evidence refuting the charge that Paul had abandoned the law, scorned or defiled the holy place. Both men saw the Lord, but only because he was warned that Israel would reject his method, uh, message. Isaiah was sent to sow persistently in a resistant field, nourishing the hope of a remnant. The Lord Jesus called Paul, on the other hand, to leave Jerusalem right away. This must have been one factor in the brothers' decision to send Paul to Tarsus when his Hellenistic Jewish opponents conspired to kill him. Paul eventually submitted to this and uh, went on. Paul believed that his track record should reasonably evoke not hostility, 
but curiosity over his radical change of heart. The Lord, however, overruled his servant's common sense. I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Jesus had told his disciples that their dreams for Israel's restoration were too small, for God's kingdom would embrace the ends of the earth. Peter had alluded to the global dimensions of the kingdom, though not yet aware of all of its implications. He says, the promise is for you, for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. God had promised to proclaim peace to those far away and near. Now he revealed to Paul that the faraway people to whom Christ reconciliating peace must be proclaimed are not just dispersed Jews but also Gentiles. Who but the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ could turn his ancient people's hardness into blessings for the nations, grafting us wild branches into the roots of his covenant mercy. He can also graft natural branches broken off in unbelief. Israelites, such as Saul of Tarsus, back into Jesus, the life-giving root of David, for that the harvest of the gospel among Gentiles and Jews, we should pray and bear witness. One of the greatest defenses of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, which will be the focus of our attention Easter Sunday, which is next, is the transformation of Saul of Tarsus into Paul the Apostle. There's no way you can get there unless Jesus saw him alive. No way. No way a turn like that could ever happen in somebody who was as zealous and devoted as he was. May it be true of all of us. Let us pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you for this word. There's a lot of information here, but we pray the main truth gets through. We thank you that you are a God who justifies the ungodly. You justify sinners. Not good people, not people who are doing well, not people who are achieving, not people who are living up to some standard. You justify the ungodly. You justify sinners who come to you in repentance and faith and you declare us to be forever in a right relationship with you you place your spirit within us you cause us to be born again anew and you write your law upon our hearts you sanctify us one day you will totally transform us into the likeness of Christ with a new body and a new place in your kingdom consummated. Now, Father, as we continue to worship today, let us do so recognizing that we have a great Savior and that the power of the cross is still being felt today. In this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.